We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. I love to ride bikes, and so one of the great privileges of being a father was the opportunity to teach all four of my children how to ride a bike. And I'm in the no training wheels school of learning how to ride a bike. No judgment on you if you used training wheels, but um, I would just get the kids on about three and a half, get them on the bike, and we'd start going. And the way it had to work is I obviously, to do that, you have to hold, I had to hold the seat or the seat post, and then they would make sure that I was holding the seat post and then get on the bike and then we'd start to go and they'd figure out pedaling and I'd be running behind them with my back kind of in that awkward position of leaning over and trying to stay up with them as they were riding along and this would just go on and on it was kind of trial and error and you know eventually they'd get going pretty good and then that's when you start letting go of course if they knew I let go they would freak out and uh, one of my kids my last one especially when I would uh, be running down the street, she'd kind of get this look of terror on her face, like, Dad, did you let go? And then she'd turn around and make sure I was still there and still holding on, and then there would be a kind of reassurance to keep going forward. We're going to continue in the Psalms this morning, Psalm 96. And in, in a way, Psalm 96 functions like that look back for the church at what reality is to reassure us, strengthen us, and enable us to continue to live the way that we've been called to live in Jesus, to live for him and his kingdom. And it's clear that there there are many circumstances that can cause us to lose our assurance and confidence. And And I love Psalm 96 for what it declares, as we'll look at it in a moment. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, Uh, It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to want to give up. And I hope that this morning's time in Psalm 96 encourages you to keep going, keep the pedals turning, to keep moving forward. And if you're not yet a Christian and you're here, maybe new to church, um, I'm so glad you're here, first of all. And I would say this psalm, while it's written for God's people, the people who believe, there's also a real challenge here for you. And I would say, actually, to all of you, uh, if you don't yet believe it, that Our conviction as Christians is that actually coming to believe, coming to trust in this God is the only way that we can then live a life of flourishing and assurance and confidence with what we have been given and live life the way it was meant to be lived. So we're going to look at Psalm 96, and I I hope to um, encourage you who are part of the people of God and and also to challenge those of you who are here listening in. We're, again, so glad you're here. So the first point— be three basic points. I'm not going to give them to you ahead of time. We'll go through them one by one. The first one is that this is a summons to praise, this psalm. So open up to Psalm 96 with me if you'd like to in your Bibles. Um, and look at the first two verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Three times in these opening two verses, we are exhorted to sing to the Lord. And it's in all caps there. It's the tetragrammaton in Hebrew. It, it's what we, we don't really know how it's pronounced, but we say often Yahweh, Israel's covenant king, the God that they worship. And this is three times in the opening verses, a command to sing to their covenant king. And who is it given to? Not just to um, one group of people, but to all the earth. So this is a summons to praise for you and for me, for the heavens, 
for the earth, for the sea, for the fields, for the trees and the rocks, everything and everyone in Psalm 96 is urged to praise this king. The Israelites lived in a polytheistic world, a world with many different gods who were in competition with one another. And their various adherents would proclaim their praises as a means of exalting their God and declaring their God's victory and supremacy over the other gods. The group that made the most noise, that had the most praise, in a sense, was lifting their God up higher and higher than those who were in competition with him. Actually, you can, with that picture in mind, Psalm 22 has a phrase in, that our God would be enthroned on the praises of Israel. I think that gives you a kind of understanding of what that means. Most of you, I'm sure, have been to a, a national conference, and uh, perhaps you've been to one, I know I have, where the MC has stood up in this large auditorium and said, you know, so who's here from Massachusetts? And people would clap. And then who's here from Rhode Island? There'd be like one clap. Uh, and then who's here from Texas? And they always win. Uh, they always win. I think I can take a little jab at Texas more faithfully now that I have a Texan in my family. My new son-in-law is from Texas. Um, but this is what the picture that we get here is, th this is a summons for the people of God to make noise in praise of him. And it beautifully, this summons in Psalm 96, calls those who worship rival gods to stop making noise for them because they are worthless and to join the chorus of praise to Yahweh, Israel's covenant king. So what's envisioned in this summons to praise is not a cacophony of competing praises going on in a polytheistic world. Rather, this psalm envisions a scene more like what is supposed to happen at the Democratic or, Na or Republican National Convention in a presidential year. At the convention, the preliminary battles are over and one candidate has emerged victorious. So everyone gathers with signs and enthusiasm and hopefulness and unity to support their presumptive nominee. It's a different era, in a sense, in a political campaign when you get to the convention. And I, and I know it doesn't really work that way. There's all kinds of backfighting, abiding and stuff that goes on. But in Psalm 96, that's the idea. The battle is over. Everybody from the rival camps come and join the praise of this one true God. It's fun to imagine for just a moment, if you think about your life here in Boston, as if you're, you know, you're going down into the city and, and every single person that you see, co-worker, neighbor, person walking across the common, uh, people in your family, every single person, imagine what it would be like if they all just gathered in Fenway Park I was just at Fenway a couple weeks ago, and, and instead of the seventh inning organist being whoever it is at Fenway, it's Nathan Skinner, and we break out into a mighty fortress is our God. And then instead of Sweet Caroline in the eighth inning, it's how great thou art. And everybody's together praising and worshiping the one true God. That's the picture that we get in Psalm 96. Notice the expansive universal language of this Psalm. We saw it already in verse one. All the earth is commanded to sing. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. This is a psalm that envisions a universal 
work of praise from every tongue and tribe and nation coming together to glorify this true king. And it's not just the people, actually. It's all of creation. If you look at the end in verse 11, let the heavens be glad, the earth rejoice, the sea roar, and all that fills it. It'd be like the green monster in the outfield grass joining in the praise in that scene at Fenway Park to praise the one true king. That's what Psalm 96 is, a summons to praise. We might say why, especially if you're not yet a follower of this God, you might say, well, why can he claim that I should praise him? And the psalm gives us the basic answer, and it's in verse 10. What's infusing the celebration and praise of the psalm is this declaration that Yahweh reigns, the Lord reigns. You see that in verse 10. This is a declaration of the gospel. This is the vision of your dad holding the bike seat as you're pedaling along, learning how to pedal. The declaration of verse 10 is the great reassurance to the people of God and to you. Whatever you're walking through today, however hard it was to get here, however perhaps numb you may feel on the inside spiritually, this declaration of verse 10 is the good news of the Bible. Your God reigns. In fact, the kingship of God is at the heart of the theology of the Psalms, all of 150. And we get to these Psalms in the late 90s, and it's that, that theology is now lifted up and really focused on with this declaration here in, in verse 10, your God reigns. This is the good news that we declare to the world and to one another, and that this Psalm declares to us. This God, the God of Israel, is on the throne, not Baal, not Marduk, not money, not security, not pedigree, not talent, not America, not individual rights, not freedom. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is on the throne. Well, you might say, well, that's a pretty bold claim. How does this get defended? And I wanna point out four things in the Psalm that actually defend this claim that Yahweh is king. So follow these four with me. The first is that he is the creator. So look at the end of verse 5. But the Lord made the heavens. One of our key convictions coming out of the biblical word about the God that we worship is that he created everything that we see. And this psalm affirms that. That's why he is the king. He is the creator. The second point is in verse 10. He is the sustainer. Second half of verse 10. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And that's right after, because he reigns. He sustains the world, holds it up, this world that he has made. Third, and perhaps what animates the psalm even more, is the fact that he is the deliverer. So look at verse 2. Tell of his salvation from day to day. As good kings do, this God has won the victory over the enemies of his people, and he set us into a place and a position of blessing. And this is... Uh, heart, a heart level uh, core insight of the biblical text all the way through is that we could not rescue or deliver ourselves. We get this in the most beautiful picture in the Old Testament when the people of God were trapped. They had come out of Egypt, but then they were trapped between the Red Sea and, the, and Pharaoh's approaching army. There was nothing that they could do. They, outside of God's intervention, were helpless and hopeless. And we too, born into sin, rebellious from this God, a God who is holy, and we'll see in a moment, is judge, a God who one day we will stand before. There's no way out, none. 
Every single one of us is guilty. And our righteousness, as the scriptures say, is like filthy rags before him. We can't stand before him. There's no way out except for God providing a way. When we celebrate the fact that God is our deliverer, we're celebrating the fact that God has done something that only God could do and none of us could do. This is at the heart of the dynamics of our Christian faith is this exuberant celebration that God has rescued, God has saved, God has delivered. And that fuels the praise of this psalm. Tell of his salvation from day to day, day after day after day, hour after hour. Celebrate the fact that he is the deliverer. So he's creator, sustainer, deliverer. And then finally, he is the restorer or the judge. Look at, we, we looked at this a little bit last week, but in verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity. And then skip to verse 13. Before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Why is judgment a thing to celebrate? We often, we don't like judgment. We mentioned this last week. We, th we don't think it's a thing to celebrate. We think it's a thing to reject. And we, most of us probably don't believe that it really is going to happen. But the scriptures are so clear. And why is it something that we celebrate? Because when God is judge, when God judges, this will be the means by which he cleanses the world of all the powers of evil that war against his good creation and that war against you and me his image bearers. Swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, in the words of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, which also uses this word for judge. His judgment will bring this world of wondrous peace about, and that's why it's something to celebrate. The word here for judge has a narrower meaning of discerning between the wicked and the righteous, or the righteous and the unrighteous, but it has a wider meaning of ruling justly. And when God rules over the world, the world will be set to right completely. And the conditions of shalom will be restored and there will be flourishing. And that's why the psalm celebrates and rejoices in the fact that God, the righteous and holy one, is the judge. And there is mercy and grace for those of us who would fall on the wrong side of his judgment in our own strength, by our own merits, whom by his grace and mercy he has washed and cleansed and renewed and redeemed, that we can join with this anticipatory praise of God's return to set the world right. Now again, if you're here and you're not yet a believer and you're wrestling with these things, I can't unpack and defend all of these claims in this moment, but that's why the psalm says, praise this God. Praise this king, because he and he alone is the creator, sustainer, deliverer, and restorer of the world, and of you. And that's why he's worthy of your praise. And alongside of that declaration that this God is worthy of our praise, there is the implicit, it's actually not implicit, it's explicit here in verse 5, critique of any other God. For all, and it's a strong one, it's very polemical. For all the gods of the peoples, verse 5, are worthless idols. They have not created, they do not sustain, they do not deliver, and they cannot restore you. They are worthless idols, not to be followed, not to be worshipped. 
You might say, well, what is an idol? And I would say an idol is anything that we put on the same level as God or above God, the true God. And often they're not Baal or Marduk in our day and age, though those kinds of idols still exist. In fact, when we were in Japan we, uh, this summer, we went and visited some missionaries of the church in Japan. And uh, my son and I remember being at a Shinto temple and just looking in at the, this native religion in Japan and, and feeling just a level of oppression that idolatry, while in our culture is more, we see it more in things like technology and agency and sexuality and beauty and power. But we saw just so kind of explicitly there in these other kinds of priests and rites and rituals, and it wasn't liberating. All of these, the psalmist says, are worthless idols. Instead, the summons is to worship the one true God. I would say that the worship of idols in any other, uh, anything other than this God that is proclaimed in the psalm does not lead to a world of neighborliness or righteousness or justice or peace societally and does not lead to a world of flourishing and peace on the inside of our own hearts. In fact, the worship of these things does quite the opposite. It dehumanizes us and our world. Uh, there was a biography written about a very well-known man in 2015. And there was a quote about him, a key business leader in our world. Everybody would know his name. But because I don't know him, and I don't know if this is really how true this is, I don't want to give you his name. But uh, it's, the biography said that he, he sent this email to an employee in his company who missed an, an event at work because of the birth of his child. The email said, that is no excuse I am extremely disappointed. You need to figure out where your priorities are. We're changing the world and changing history, and you either commit or you don't. Now, again, I don't know his heart. Maybe he was just having a bad day when he wrote that email. But the, re the, the illustration here is that anytime you serve something else, and in this case, it's being a world changer and success and like making the biggest impact that you can, things of value suddenly fall to the wayside. They become expendable. You're expendable. Being present at the birth of your child is expendable to the greater cause. That's the way idolatry always works. It always demands more and more and more. And there's never enough to give over. And it delivers nothing in return. And so the Psalms declaration about the true God and praising him is actually an invitation to the world. This is part of the mission of God to liberate you from idolatry, from the dehumanizing effects of idolatry, that you might be alive in the praise of the one true God, who is your creator, sustainer, deliverer, and restorer. That's the logic of this psalm. Now, it's astonishing to think that the psalmist wrote this before, or, and without knowing the story of Jesus. The psalmist would have known the Exodus and the great conquest of Canaan, would have probably known of David's conquest of the Philistines and these significant victories. But Jesus's, since Jesus' day, the church has rightly understood and celebrated the reign of God in Psalm 96 to be fulfilled in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no surprise, actually, Psalm 96 is the psalm that is traditionally read on Christmas Day. The newborn king and his subsequent life, death, and resurrection reveals the salvation and restoration of God that is available to all the nations that this psalm so celebrates that all the peoples of the earth and it is unlike any other event in history. Reading the psalm in the light of Jesus ratchets up the exuberant praise of Psalm 96 to an exponentially high 
level. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is, in fact, the one whom the creator, sustainer, deliverer, and restoring God sends into the world as himself in the person of his son to deliver us by becoming human, by taking upon himself our nature, by bearing in himself the cost and guilt and shame of our sin, by going to the cross and dying for his enemies, and that this is the means by which this God reveals his nature and character for his world, that they might enter into his people of praise. And his resurrection declares, again, unambiguously his victory at the cross and the fact that he is, in fact, the king of all. It's an extraordinary thing to be summoned to praise the one true God. So let's think thirdly and finally about what it means, this life of praise, and how it impacts our lives as the people of God. How does it encourage us and grow us as we seek to walk forward? If we were to come under the summons of Psalm 96 again. And I should say that the scriptures regularly point out idolatry as they do here in verse 5, worthless idols. But that is normally, well, I've said it's a challenge to you if you're not yet a a Christian, but it's also uh, most commonly given in the biblical word so that the people of God would hear that challenge. Our hearts need to be hearing again and again about the dangers of idolatry because, as Calvin once wrote, our hearts are idol factories. We so easily yield to other gods. So if we yield to this king, uh, what does it look like? What does it do in our lives? Let me offer three things as we close. As we praise this king, it's an act. The act of praise itself is an act of seeding, yielding our lives over to the one true God. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, calls the act of praise an act of exuberant abandonment. When you praise this God as king, his reign, his salvation, his coming world-writing judgment, We are acknowledging his rule, and we are again placing ourselves underneath his rule once again. Our praise constructs a kind of canopy under which we take refuge, and we're surrendering again to him. Second thing that the the praise works out in our lives, not only to yielding and surrender again, but it becomes a way of creating and refueling our hope in the midst of our exile. This is not the world that we want right now, not any of us. Our world is broken, and there is much reason for tears and pain and anguish, and we all suffer in various ways. But we've been assured through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that a new and better world is indeed coming. So our praise strengthens hope, not hope in the right circumstances happening to us, not hope in our ability to make them happen, but in a God who has declared his intentions about a new world and who will, in fact, see these intentions to completion. As we praise him, our hope is set again upon him as the only king, the only one worthy of praise, and upon him and his purposes that will be worked out in the world. To praise him is to refuel our hope. Hebrews 6 encourages us to hold fast to the hope that is set before us and then calls this hope the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. 
to keep riding our bike, to keep pedaling in the world. We desperately need hope. And the act of praise restores and refuels us in that hope in the God who is over all and coming back to restore all things. And then the third thing, not just yielding and not just renewing hope, but praise, the act of praise, when we take it up on our lips and in our lives, it strengthens our resolve to resist the empire of our day and to boldly live in faithfulness to our King. Praise hardens our resistance to the idolatries around us, our resistance to the kingdoms of this world. It delegitimizes the claims of any other empire, claims like might is right, only the fittest survive. Resources are scarce, and you better work really hard to get what you can, and when you get it, clench your fist. Or the idea that we can save and rescue and justify ourselves and our existence. All of these things are in the air that we breathe, but by praising the Creator King, the Delivering King, our wills are resolved again to walk with Him faithfully in the midst of our exile. This act of praise is a kind of turning back like the little girl on the bike and seeing the dad holding the seat and being assured and convinced that that is reality and then able and empowered to keep pedaling forward, to keep walking down the path of generosity, selflessness, love, justice, care, forgiveness. None of these things are the natural way of the world but they are the way of our King, and He empowers us to this life through His Spirit. So the summons to praise the one true King, when we take it upon our lips, it leads to a yielding, a renewal of hope, and a strengthened resolve to be for Him in the world in which we find ourselves. And this is just what we need, because we are regularly tempted not to yield, but to take control. We are regularly tempted not to hope, but to, dis to despair. We all know how easy despair just kind of looms over us. And we are often tempted to give up, to stop the ride. And this encourages us to keep moving forward. We desperately need the work of praise in our lives, which is why I would su suggest to you, you notice this is not, Psalm 96 is not suggesting it's not saying, hey, I have a good idea. Maybe you should praise God. It's an exhortation. It's a command. And this is a sign of the grace of God. He knows how praise will work in our lives to strengthen and renew our faith. And so he commands us through his word, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. This is an exhortation and a command to do this, whether you feel like it or not. And some of you I know don't this morning. And some of you do, praise God. But all of you, whatever you feel, are commanded to praise him. And I am too. And when we do, the way God has worked this out is that it fuels and deepens our life in him in a way that we desperately need. So I want to encourage you to lift up your heads this morning and to praise him to praise him as the king, to crown him as the king. He is our creator, sustainer, deliverer, and restorer. And he is committed to us and to his world. He's holding on to us tightly. And let me say this in a different, with different pronouns. He is your king. 
He is your creator, your sustainer, your deliverer, your restorer. He is holding on tightly to you. So praise him. Praise him. Glorify him. Exalt him. Let's pray. We do indeed praise you, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Forgive us for our, our idolatry. Lord, help us to let go of that which diminishes us and steals your glory. And renew us again in a life of exclusive allegiance to you. How we glorify and praise you, the God who rescues and delivers, the God who is coming to restore. Be glorified, we pray, through this church and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.